at the one ace of eight. Thank you. Is it better if I'm down there? Get a little closer to you. That's okay. Um, Bob, you were able to play baseball, and you said you got to play, and it was wonderful. Um, we weren't able to play those kinds of community sports when I was growing up. We were poor. But one year, to my surprise, my folks let us play, and that was the year I learned how to juggle sitting in the dugout. <laughs> so it didn't always go so well. Um, something else you need to know, uh, Bob Bennett does these house concerts a lot of times online, and you can often tune him in live and listen to him, and it's wonderful. And he'll do, I don't know, 90 minutes of music usually, and sometimes you can get on and request a song you might want to hear or something like that. It's actually pretty fascinating, and, and um, I don't know, who, how do they go to that? Just put Bob Bennett? Um, if you look for <coughs> So that might be something you might might want to do. It's usually on Saturdays, except when I'm doing conferences. And I take the weekend off. <laughs> Thank you, Jerry. Appreciate that. Yeah. Um, the other thing, too, is uh, this evening I want to talk about C.S. Lewis, Imagination and the Arts. C.S. Lewis, Imagination and the Arts. But before we do, let's pray. Father, we worship you for the privilege of being here. We worship you for the hard work that went into making this conference possible. Again, bless Emily for her work and her staff and so on. We thank you, Father, for all the people that made sacrifices of varying levels to be here that we might have the benefit of the interaction and so on with one another, the communication, the conversations. We worship you for this. But once again, Father, I, I recognize I don't know very much. I'm a pea brain. And I know, Father, that what I offer isn't much more than crumbs. But I know that your son once took something as small as crumbs, five loaves and two fish for the feeding of 5,000. How is that going to work? And yet he took them, he broke them, he blessed them, and everybody left satisfied. This is a room full of people who have different challenges in their life, various histories of, of joys and sorrows. Some are in sorrow now, some are in joy now. What's the possibility that one person could stand in front of a room like this and even hope that he could connect with the challenges of each heart? It's nonsense to us, Lord. And yet your word says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I pray this evening that just as your son broke those loaves and fishes, I pray your Holy Spirit would take the crumbs that are offered here and he would also break them, bless them, multiply them, and apply them to each heart here so that each person would hear what you have for him or her. And in the hearing, they would also have the affirmation of your deep love, particularly and individually applied and we ask this in Christ's name, wanting to see something supernatural happen in our midst. In your name we pray, amen. The idea of C.S. Lewis and the imagination and the arts is a topic too big to cover, given the reams of material in Lewis's writing. 73 books, virtually all of them have something like this. If you've read Mere Christianity, he'll make a proposition and then he depicts it. 
with some sort of an image. And it runs all through all of his books, even his academic books. Even if you read the 700-page book called English Literature in the 16th Century Excluding Drama, 700-page book that it took him 18 years to write. And he wrote it for the Oxford History of English Literature, and he called it his O-Hell volume, Oxford History English Literature, because of the <laughs> challenge. But you read it, and you laugh your way through it. It's full of winsomeness. It's full of precision and insight, but also all these imaginative depictions. The, 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 the material is so vast, but I want to focus on some of the features of imaginative endeavors that allow us to gain a more robust grasp of God and his presence in the world, and I want to affirm you as artists that you have great work to do to help bring these depictions to life for other people. The things that you see where God is at work in your world and life so that others might see and benefit them. Lewis wrote this, The imaginative man in me is older and more continually operative and in that sense more basic than either the religious writer or the critic. It was he who made me first attempt with little success to be a poet. It was he who, in response to the poetry of others, made me a critic. And in defense of that response, sometimes a critical controversialist. It was he who, after my conversion, led me to embody my religious beliefs in symbolical or mythopoeic forms, ranging from screw tape to a kind of theologized science fiction. And it was, of course, he who has brought me in the last few years to write the series of Narnian stories for children. There's no getting around the fact that this remarkable output of publications are pearls held together on the string of Lewis's imagination. Therefore, any introduction to Lewis's writing must include a study of his uses of the imagination. But I would like to say that while Lewis wrote that, nevertheless, to properly situate the imaginative man in Lewis, we must understand something of the rational man and the logical man as well. Lewis wrote, the first problem in life is how do you fit the stone in the shell? What did he mean by that? Well, William Wordsworth, the poet, wrote a poem called The Prelude. And in it, he has an image of a Bedouin shepherd carrying a stone, which represented reason, and carrying a shell that represented the romantic longings of the heart and those things that would be depicted imaginatively. And this Bedouin shepherd's trying to fit the two together. Uh, why do we need to fit the two together? Well, if anything, the fall estranges us. Uh, sin is man playing God of his own life. Every definition is given that way. Um, the Greek word for sin and the doctrine of sin, it's called homardiology. Homartia is the Greek word, and it, it's an archer's term. Archer takes the arrow from the quiver, knocks it in the bow, shoots it at a target, it falls short of the target. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. We assume a position we weren't qualified for. Um, the serpent says to uh, Adam and Eve, in the day you eat of this tree, you, you shall be like God. And then you've also got 1 John uh, chapter 3, verse 4, sin is lawlessness. Uh, the Greek word for law is nomos. The Greek word that's used there for lawlessness is not antinomian. We're not against the law. It's anomos. We're without the law. We're anarchistic. We become a law to ourselves. So how does that, how does that work for us? Does it make us community people? No, it makes us anarchists. And anarchists are bad community people. And consequently, then, here is the separation that goes on between us and God, 
between us and others, and even within ourselves, the separation of head and heart, the separation of the life of the spirit and the life of the flesh. And God wants to make us whole. He wants to reconcile these things in us. So anyway, this image of fitting the stone in the shell that Lewis says is the first problem in life. It's basically the problem of reconciliation, and it's been the problem since the fall. God wants to put these things together. The first book that Lewis wrote after he became a Christian was a book called The Pilgrim's Regress, an allegorical apology for Christianity, reason, and romanticism. We find in our faith this thing that brings these pieces together for us. And Lewis's rational pursuit was a quest for truth. He wrote, reason is the organ of truth, but imagination is the organ of meaning. I can sometimes hear a truth, but what does it mean? Uh, Viktor Frankl, you know, in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he says, uh, if there's a meaning in life, then there must even be a meaning in suffering. And we look to the artist and the imaginative person to depict for us possibilities that could break us out of the dungeon that we find ourselves in when these conundrums occur and we want to get out of it. Um, I want to say a few words, though, about this truth side, the rational side. Truth is not reality. Let me say it again. Truth is not reality. Truth is what I think about reality when I think accurately about it. There has to be a reality to support a claim. This is a pen, true or false. All right, we're going to look at it more complexly in just a moment. It's true because there's a reality that supported my claim. This is a pen. The classical definition of truth, you'll find it in Plato, Aristotle. You'll find it throughout the scholastics. You'll find it throughout even in the Enlightenment philosophers, even, even people like uh, John Locke and so on. They're still affirming this view of truth. There have been anomalies that have come up, uh, things like relativism, things like some of the postmodernist uh, uh, depictions and so on. They don't last very long because there's no reality that will support the claim. So the classical definition is this. A statement is true when it says what is, is, or what is not, is not. And a statement is false when it says what is, is not, or what is not, is. How complex is that definition? There's only two words, the word statement, that were more than one syllable. This is a pen. True. Why? Because I said what is, is. This is not an elephant. True. Because I said what is not, is not. This is an elephant, false, because I said what is not is. This is not a pen, that's false, because I said what is is not. So there you go, that's the simple definition. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> so here's a pen, and, and, and yet that's not a last word about this. It has a length, it has a width, it has a weight. It has a molecular structure. It's made of plastic, oil byproducts. And, and it also has a chemical compound for its ink. It has a function, how it writes on paper, how it writes on cardboard, how it writes on paper smeared with butter. Not very well. But this is a, a pen, and we're already moving into levels of complexity and going deeper with our understanding. You'll not get a last word even about this. That doesn't mean you can't have a sure word. You can have confidence with a sure word, but because you'll never get a last word, you should also have humility. And as artists and imaginative people, it means you'll also have a job to do. 
because there are always people who are going to need more robust depictions to understand to go deeper. Even the scientific method, how does it begin? With a hypothesis. That, that's an imaginative endeavor. And when the scientist tests the hypothesis and discovers something, what does he or she do? They depict what they've discovered with models. The models are not the same. Uh, the, 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 they're not the, uh, the thing itself. They're going to have to give way to more robust models the more they study and the more they grow. And so imagination is always going to be necessary. The work of the artist will always be relevant. And because there's no last word, it should commu communicate humility in the heart of the honest seeker. Every truth, every truth you know can be plumbed more deeply. It can be applied more widely. It's no, it's no threat. It leaves room for wonder, awe, and worship, and the quest to know more. Now, here's another thing about the word, and this is going to be important. The word pen is arbitrary. I could have called it a gazortenblatt. But whatever I call it when I want to describe this, I'm going to use a symbol. Uh, the word symbol comes from two Greek words, soon with and balé, to cast or to throw. I'm throwing together two things, an object with a word, so that now I've come up with a shorthand. I don't have to have one of these handy when I'm talking about a pen. And, and this is so important that there's a reality that supports in the statement. But while the word pen is arbitrary, once a community settles on a word, it's no longer arbitrary. It has to be used in the way that asserts the truth that's implied by the use of that word. And now look where we're at right now in our world. However, for communication to occur, it can't remain arbitrary, and a culture uh, to be sustained has to have a unity when it comes to the use of these terms. And, and what we're living in right now is you can use whatever pronoun you want. You can be whatever gender you want. Is there a reality that supports that claim? No. So what does it become? Self-referential. And it isolates us from one another and causes greater estrangements and greater struggle. Um, Lewis chronicles this in a book he wrote called The Abolition of Man. And he talks about the objective reality. He talks about the fact that we have knowers and we have things that can be known. And these have to be in sync if you're going to have truth. He uses an an Eastern term, Tao, to describe this. And he uses an Eastern term because he wants to show this isn't just a Western concept. In the appendix of that book, he's got quotes from Confucius and he's got quotes from Aristotle. He's got quotes from everybody in all different ages. It is not a Western term. It is a reality term. It is a reality concept. And he says when a society rejects the reality all of a sudden that re, uh, society begins to fall apart. Now, he writes about that in The Abolition of Man very propositionally, but he depicts it in an imaginative work of art called That Hideous Strength. And what happens is this, 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 this community, it's, it's not a community, it's very divisive. It's called the NICE, but it's not NICE. It's a National Institute of Coordinated Experiments. And they're after each other, and it's the whole, the whole community falls apart because they lose the meanings of words, and the whole book ends in a repeat of the Tower of Babel. 
And we're at the Tower of Babel time right now. Who is going to help us break out and see things as they are rather than how individuals in our culture want to have it be? Who's going to somehow bring about reconciliation where the fabric is so ripped apart? And I'm calling you to that. It's a, it's a high call. And because you are gifted and wired the way you are, it's a God-given call. And it's cool. So because this is happening in our world today, it lends a sense of urgency to the work of the artist. The materialism of our day and its consequent self-referentialism shuts out God. Uh, at least it attempts to do so and threatens the existence of all that God endows with meaning and purpose. Let me just give you a case in point example. Years ago, I was teaching a C.S. Lewis class at Wheaton College, and there was a young woman in the class who said her best friend since kindergarten was going to come and visit her because her spring break was different than Wheaton's spring break. Her best friend went to Brown University, Ivy League. That's pretty impressive. And she says, she's an atheist, though, and I was wondering if you could talk to her about spiritual things after class. I said, I'd be delighted. So she brings her to the class. I meet her after class, and I say, you guys have been friends since kindergarten? What's that like? Not many people have friendships that extend those many years. And we talked about that. And then I said, um, I heard that you're a Brown University student. You must be very bright. Ivy League, it's incredible. What are you studying there? She said, biochemistry. I said, that's a challenging major. You're smarter than first impression would imply. Well, we talked about spiritual things in class. What did you think? She said, well, frankly, as a biochemist, and I thought that was a little premature because she was only a sophomore. <laughs> as a biochemist, I live by the principle, if I can't perceive it empirically, I just won't believe it. Total materialist. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. You say, if you can't perceive it empirically, you won't believe it. That's your principle. Did I get it right? She said, yeah. I said, would you please set that principle forth for me empirically? I hope you see the problem. It's a proposition. It's a principle. It's something that's rationally perceived. It's not empirically perceived at all. She freaked out. She saw the conflict. And she said, well, I can't believe it. I, I, why, everybody at Brown University believes this. I said, no, 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 no. There's Christians there, too. You'd be surprised. They sort of get everywhere. <laughs> and I said, not only that, just out of fairness to materialists, I know materialists who wouldn't go as far as you just went right then. And I said, don't get me wrong. I love the sciences. But there's a guy named John Polkinghorne who is a physicist at Cambridge University in England and was the president of one of the Cambridge colleges, also had a degree in theology, and was pastoring a church at the same time he was doing physics at Cambridge. And he said, if you ask the scientists why is the kettle boiling, the scientists would say heat from the burner is causing the water in the kettle to be agitated, and it boils at 100 degrees centigrade at sea level. He says that's the answer that the scientists could give you from the mere measurable. But he said, you could also say, it's actually boiling because I wanted a cup of tea, and would you like one too? And for mere scientific quantitative assessment, you could never give the second answer. And yet those answers are important because we live as complex beings who are seeking to reconcile head and heart, head and the romantic longing, and so on. 
And, and not only that, I said to her, Mortimer Adler, the philosopher who taught at University of Chicago for so long, he said that in four generations, we've gone from saying that which is measurable is important for science to saying that which is measurable is the only thing that's important. And we're living in a world where this kind of spell has fallen on our culture. And who's going to break us out of this? This is the mantle that's falling to you. It's an important one, a very important one. And, and I look at it this way too. I, and I said this to the woman, the young woman. The university has four divisions. The sciences with their applications in engineering. The social sciences. It has the fine arts. And it has the, the humanities. And you look at them. I love the fact that we have sciences and engineers have applied them. I live in Wheaton, Illinois. It gets so cold there. I tell my friends in California, you want to know how cold it gets? Get in your freezer and go about 35, 40 degrees colder and you'll have an idea. And stay there for four months and you'll have an idea of how we live. I am grateful that the scientists and the engineers have figured out how to keep our houses warm, figured out how to keep the pipes from bursting in the middle of the winter, figured out how to do all this glorious stuff. I love it. But that's only one quarter, I said to this woman, of the holistic approach to knowledge and understanding of what it is to be human. I said, I like the social sciences. Um, societies are always fluid. They're changing all the time. And consequently, then, I want to understand the world I live in. I appreciate the work of the anthropologists, the sociologists, the psychologists, social scientists. I like the fine arts. I know you like them. You're here. But think about the fine arts, though. Um, you've got music. You've got the, the different studio artists. You've got poets. You've got uh, guitarists and singers and so on. The interesting thing, though, to me, is that the fine arts are the thing that distinguish us from the animals. Oh, we know that the animals can build things. Bees build hives. Birds build nests. Um, you've got uh, birds. Be uh, beavers build dams. But have you ever seen the Romanesque period of Robin's Nest? Have you ever seen the Georgian period of Beaver Dam? Have you ever seen the prairie architecture period or the uh, Frank Lloyd Wright period of beehives. No. They build instinctually. We build and decorate what we build because we love the arts. We are made for this sort of thing. It distinguishes us as human beings. So anyway, the woman had been an atheist. The next year she came back. I said, hey, it's good to see you. How are you? She says, I'm an agnostic now. I said, that's progress. <laughs> That's progress. <coughs> Let me put it a different way. George MacDonald once said in his novel, Annals of a Quiet Neighborhood, we do not have souls. We are souls. We have bodies. If you tell a child he has a soul, he thinks like anything else he has. His books, his keys, his homework, whatever, his coat. He thinks he could leave it someplace else while he goes another place. You tell him he has a soul, he thinks when he dies, he goes to the grave and his soul goes someplace else. McDonald says, tell him he is a soul. 
And when he dies, he leaves his body behind like clipped hair on a barbershop floor, for those of you that still go to barbershops. And consequently, as he writes about this, MacDonald writes about this, um, he also talks about the fact, in, in, in the idea of the soul, I've read a lot of books on it, I think I could give you pretty, pretty solid proofs of the existence of the immaterial part of what it is to be human. But generally we say that the soul has at least these components, a thinking part, reason, a feeling part, the emotion, and a choosing part, the will. I want to suggest to you, even coming from an academic environment, hands down, the reason is the weakest. The reason is the weakest. If, if, if I make a bad decision, bad choice, exercise my will in an inappropriate way, does my reason kick in and say to my will, that was stupid, Jerry. You go down that path, you're just going to hurt yourself and hurt the other people who care for you. No, my reason being weak is marshaled by my will to start making excuses for the bad choice. Um, <clears throat> the philosophers call it akrasia or akrasia. Akrasia is the Greek word for command. Put the alpha in front of it, it means to lose command of my moral life because I've rationalized my bad choices to the place where I can't see clearly again. Do you think there's a place for the artist there? Anytime I can't see clearly, I need the imaginative depictions to help me see beyond. My emotion, my reason, if I'm hurt, if I'm hurt, I can get bitter. Does my reason kick in and say, Jerry, you need to grieve and forgive what was done to you? Or you become bitter and it becomes toxic and it begins to destroy you? No, my reason being weak, it suppresses that hurt. Keeps it beneath the surface. You bump into me, I'm going to bleed a little bit your way because I haven't dealt with the stuff. And, and, and it's interesting that C.S. Lewis put it this way. Continued disobedience to conscience makes conscience blind. The rationalizations of a society make it blind to its pains, its sorrows, its capacities to hurt one another. We need the artist. We need the imaginative endeavor that can help us see more clearly. G.K. Chesterton said, vice demands a sort of virginity. It tries to correct things artificially. And how did Paul put it in Romans 1.18? We suppress truth in our unrighteousness. Do you think you're going to argue that person with sound, rational arguments out of the behaviors that they've embraced? Probably not. They've got all their defenses up. And so Lewis says that reason stands like dragon sentries before my heart, monitoring what's going to get through. And here's what Lewis says. Sometimes story gets past the dragon sentries. Sometimes story, the imaginative endeavor. All of us who read the Bible know that this is true. Why? Because we know about when David sinned so egregiously. And to cover up his sin, he kills Uriah the Hittite. And now here's Nathan, the prophet, who's told, you need to go tell David what he did was wrong. I don't know about you, I wouldn't want that assignment. He's already killed one person to cover up. So how does Nathan approach him? He tells a story. And when he tells the story, David hears it. And he says, that man must punish, be punished four times. David actually loses four sons. But he hears it through the story. Um, we also read the scriptures, and what did Jesus do? 
He says in his world where the people had eyes, but they could not see, mm -hmm. and ears, but they could not hear. Jesus still wants to reach them, so what does he do? He tells parables, and he tells them in a very unpretentious way. He doesn't just tell one parable, and that's it, and there's no other way to look at this but this one parable. These things are complex, so he comes at it a bunch of different ways. The kingdom of heaven is like. It's like a man who goes out to sow seed. It's a man, like a person who has a field of seed, and then somebody else comes and sows something else different. And, and, and rather than harvesting right then, it's kept for the end days and so on. A kingdom of heaven is like a, a man who finds a treasure in a field and goes and sells all that he can to buy a new treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great price. The kingdom of heaven is like, he's saying all these things so we realize the complexity of this is always needing these kinds of imaginative depictions that we can pick them up and, and solve the problem more clearly. Paul does it too. He talks about the courage to suffer and endure as he's writing to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. And he says, you need to endure like a soldier. You need to endure like an athlete. You need to endure like a hardworking farmer. And have you read recently the book of Isaiah or the book of Jeremiah or the book of Ezekiel? I just finished them in my quiet time recently. And they're always using these depictions and always using these images. Anyway, the artist's role, in part, is to help others to see. And this work must be done carefully. And it must be carefully done lest it manipulates. The arts can be manipulative. Um, it was C.S. Lewis who said, the worst of bad men are religious bad men. Maybe the quicker I'd be willing to die for my faith, maybe the quicker I'd be willing to kill for my faith. Or paint a thus saith the Lord across my own opinions. Have you ever been to a church service where the pastor at the end of it, well-meaning pastor, he says, I'm not telling you this, this is the word of God. I don't know if you've ever heard that done before. It's sad. And I know I used to do it when I was a youth pastor. No, I gave you my best take on that text, due diligence, studying hard, but my, my presentation was not on the same standard as Scripture. If I begin to extend the doctrine of inerrancy to my interpretation, I've entered into a kind of borderline blasphemy. And again, I don't think people realize they're doing it, but we have to be careful. Is it possible that the artist can manipulate. You can depict, you get somebody emotionally interested, and all of a sudden you start persuading in ways you ought not persuade. And so there's difficulty there as well. Even though these things can be abused, Thomas Aquinas once made this observation, an abuse does not nullify a proper use. If you begin to say, because it could be abused, therefore I'm not going to do it at all, no, do due diligence and do it well. And be in a community of artists where you can critique one another's work and make sure that what you're doing is presenting that which every person could begin to benefit from and you begin to see in the world what Elizabeth Barrett Browning, the poet, once said, every bush is a burning bush and the world is crowded with God. C.S. Lewis said, God walks everywhere incognito. Our responsibility is to awaken to him and even more, remain awake. Every act of depiction is also a re-veiling. Um, 
when, when you read Habakkuk chapter 3, when was the last time you heard Habakkuk quoted in a sermon, right? We don't usually get that. You know, by the way, you know what the word Habakkuk means, his name? It means hug, affectionate one. Isn't that a great name? Any of you name any of your kids Habakkuk? I'm just kidding. <laughs> affectionate one. Anyway, Habakkuk is, is writing about the glory of God. And he says, in the display of God's glory, there was the hiding of his power. God is omnipotent. If he speaks and a universe comes into be, we say, wow, that's impressive. But it's still the hiding of his power. He didn't show us the full extent of his omnipotence. I don't think we could ever see it. So there is always, in any revealing of God's work in the world, a reveiling something that's still hidden. That means the artist is always going to have a job to do. There's more that we can see, and you can help us see that. It's, 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 true, it's true with theology as well. You know, we don't want to make it seem that theology's got it all together. Um, there, there's uh, um, the study of church history. You'll find that, you know, Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, they're just trying to figure out how this whole Trinity thing works. And then they, they haven't quite figured out how the two natures of Christ work. So they have Council of Constantinople in 381. And they say, well, we know it's not like this. And they dismiss some of the bad, the bad theology. Then they get to the Council of Chalcedon in 451. And they say, here's how it works. Fully God, fully man. Theology is a dynamic discipline. Why? Because God is big and we're pea brains. And we want to understand. And just like the scientist uses a hypothesis to extend his, his or her understanding, we need to extend imaginatively so that we can begin to grow and so on. It's very powerful. Tennyson said of theological systems in his poem, In Memoriam, Our little systems have their day. They have their day and cease to be. They are but broken lights of thee. And thou, O Lord, art more than they. And you as an artist depict what you're seeing as best you can, and you know it's not a last word. So that means you can go and depict it another way. And another, have you ever seen some artist with a, who was talking to, was it, was it you, Jeff, today? You were talking about this guy who paints this one oak tree, and he's painted the one oak tree how many times? And every time he paints it, he sees something deeper, something new about it. Isn't that wonderful? I, I love that. Okay, so anyway, let's go back to the, so good theology, good art, and so on should be dynamic. There's always room for more. But let's go back to past watchful dragons. Image making has its validity, but like all things in a fallen world, there are risks. So let's look at the ballad exercise. I, I just came back from Greece. I was in Greece last week, and we went to a lot of uh, uh, monasteries and things like that, and we saw all these icons. So the Orthodox Church uses icons. And you got a lot of people who are Protestants who are saying, oh, icons, you know, they're bad. They start worshiping the icons. That is way over judgment. There are some people who worship the icons. It's true. But that, that's not universally so. Matter of fact, many of the icons, there's so much symbolism in the icons. Many of the icons have whoever's being uh, uh, depicted, their hand up like this. And it's a statement, don't worship me. It's not about me. But go ahead and look at me and see where I might take you in your understanding. There were people who had come in, I saw them, kissing some of the icons. Were they worshiping the icons? 
I don't think they were worshiping the icons any more than you worship when you go to a church because you like the way the worship is there. Now, some of them are worshiping the white icons, but the, the use of it, the, the proper use of it, um, the, the abuses doesn't nullify the proper use. And so consequently, even as I look at people who are using icons, how they're worshiping, I want to understand that better. Matter of fact, let's look at how we worship. How many of you, when you pray, close your eyes when you pray? How many of you, if you don't, feel a little bit guilty? Okay, we have two ways of worship in the Christian world. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me depict it like this way. We have three words, uh, imminent, imminent, and imminent. Did you get all the differences? So you have imminent, E-M-I-N-E-N-T. What does it mean? Huh? No, you're close. I'm going to come back to you in just a moment. Um, huh? Yeah, yeah, imminent. Like you'd say of King Charles, your eminence. It's something that's of great and large reputation. We can talk about God as being imminent in that regard. But now you've got another word, and it's uh, imminent. What does it mean? I-M-M-I-N-E-N-T. Huh? Coming now. It's, com it's coming. And I remember it because it's got the initials of minute in the middle. Could happen any minute. Okay? And we can talk about the imminent return of Christ. But then you've got this other word, immanent. What does that mean? Close by. Oh, you're amazing. I, I knew we could draw it out of you. It means uh, imminent. It's close. It's going to happen. It's, it could happen any minute. Uh, no, that's imminent. It means it's close. <laughs> Yeah, and the way I remember, it's got the word man in the middle. When I think of Jesus becoming a man and making himself imminent. What's the contrast to immanent? Transcendence. That which is not near, but over and beyond, and so on. So, so these two understandings, Charles Williams, C.S. Lewis's good buddy, and Williams, and by the way, Lewis writes about this also in the last book he wrote before he died, Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. He said, of anything we see in the world, anything, we can say, this also is thou, capital T-H-O-U. And then we also have to follow it up with saying, neither is this thou. We don't worship the thing that, God display, that displays God's glory, but everything you see, God is present in it. Every bush is a burning bush, and the world is crowded with God. This also is thou. But lest you become an idolater, you also say, neither is this thou. So the, it's called the negative and, and the affirmative ways of worship. The negative way, it looks at the transcendence of God, and it says, neither is this thou. God's bigger. And it's the one that prays with eyes closed because it wants to block out any distraction so I can focus on the one. It's a great way to worship, but when it goes south, it goes south usually towards legalism. Remember when you were a kid and you said grace before the meal and one of your siblings said, Mommy, Johnny didn't have his eyes closed when we prayed and the first legalist is born. <laughs> the other way prays with eyes wide open. The this also is thou approach. It's called the cataphatic approach. Kata is a Greek preposition for down or according to. 
The other is the apophatic, from or away. It looks at the transcendence. The other one looks at the presence. The cataphatic approaches to worship, the affirmative approaches to worship, worship with eyes open. They worship with smells and bells and colors, and they invite the entire body to enter into the whole worship experience. And when it goes south, how does it go? Towards idolatry. Both ways are good, and the antidote of the excesses of the other is to spend some time on the other side. And I think that you've seen a lot of people that have come from some degree of rigidity in churches, and they're drifting towards the more uh, um, empirical approaches to worship. But you see some of the people in the empirical approaches of worship, and they're saying, you know, we got all this empirical stuff, but I'm not getting some solid theology, and they drift towards the ones that, that, that have the more um, apophatic approach to worship. Jesus said this. John came, and he was neither eating nor drinking. And they said, he's a madman, crazy guy. And then Jesus said, the Son of Man came both eating and drinking. I, I like the way Jesus describes himself, frankly. But no, he says he came both eating and drinking. And what did they say about Jesus? He was a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber and a friend of sinners and so on. And then Jesus says this, wisdom is vindicated by her children. He validates both ways of worship. But a lot of times we forget, and we need you artists to help us see that we can pray with eyes wide open. We can see the world as it is. And maybe sometimes you remind us we should pray with our eyes closed as well. Um, there's more I'd like to explain about this, but I'll just end it with this. The biggest idea in all of Lewis's writing, the biggest idea, it's in all 73 books. He doesn't say it necessarily explicitly, but he explains it in multiple numbers of ways, and it's this. Reality is iconoclastic. Remember, here's reality, and I'm going to try and describe reality and define it and so on. Reality is iconoclastic. What does that mean? Well, let's say I have an image of God. Um, I had a late-night conversation with friends. I read a book. I heard a sermon. I heard a lecture at school. And somehow some of the pieces of the puzzle came together for me. And I saw with greater clarity, and it took my breath away. Well, that hel image, helpful in that moment, if I hold on to it too tightly, it will begin to compete against my having a growing understanding. And so um, it becomes like an idol. And reality is iconoclastic. The once helpful image has to give way to more images, more robust understanding. Again, that's why we need the artists. And, and so um, Lewis isn't the only one who writes about this. He says, he says, God is always kicking out the walls of temples we build for him because he wants to give us more of himself. The iconoclast breaks those idols. So here are other authors who write about this. Um, Baron von Hugel, the philosopher of religion who was Evelyn Underhill's spiritual director. He said, beware of the first clarity press on to the second clarity and the third clarity. Here's uh, um, Robert Browning, who wrote a, a poem called Rabbi Ben Ezra. And, and I read this to my wife every year on our anniversary. It's the one that begins, grow old along with me, the best is yet to be. 
But about line 34 in that poem, he says, Then welcome each rebuff that turns earth's smoothness rough. We can think we got it all figured out. Our earth is nice and smooth. Everything's in its proper place. But the earth isn't smooth. It has texture. It has geography. It has peaks. It has valleys. Welcome the thing that helps you to see it the way that it is rather than the way you think it is. The artist will always have a job. And then you've got also, I, I, I mentioned uh, Tennyson's In Memoriam, but Augustine in his Confessions says, the house of my soul is too small. Enlarge it, Lord, that you might enter in. And then, of course, the great theologian, Lucy Pevensey. When she sees Oslan the Christ figure in Prince Caspian, the second time she goes into Narnia, she says, Oslan, you're bigger. And he says, no child, I am not. But every year you grow, you'll find me bigger. You help us. We lay people who are not artists, help us using your imagination, using your gifts, help us to see how big he is and that we'll never get to the bottom of it. Let's pray. Father, bless these people that you have gifted and bless them missionally as they do their work in the world, whether it is displayed before many or whether it's just displayed before friends. Let them find great, great joy and satisfaction in serving you with the way that you have gifted them. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.